0: We're going to begin today's episode a little differently than most. We're going to begin with a disclaimer. I have never intended to convey that this podcast is made for people of all ages. Instead, there are times where we engage headlines and subject matter that would simply be inappropriate for all ages to discuss. Today's topic matter would be an example of that. And so if you are listening to this episode in a vehicle in which there are little children, or if you're traveling or you're listening with your family, in one way or another, I would encourage you to check out another episode and to listen to this when you are alone. Sharing that disclaimer and then moving forward, I would like to talk about today's episode and what what we are going to unpack. We're going to be talking today about a positive sexual ethic, what Christians believe about human sexuality, not because of cultural influences or because things are taught from the pulpit, but instead because of what the Word of God teaches about the subject. I want us to understand a sexual ethic that is pro-body, pro-marriage, and pro-pleasure. A recent Reddit thread asked the question, Why are Christians so sex-obsessed? It continued, Seems like a lot of Christians I meet and a lot of churches have an unhealthy fixation on sex and sexual sin. Why are homosexuality, premarital sex, abortion, sodomy, birth control, divorce, porn, and masturbation such a huge hill to die on for so many Christians? I think it is bad enough to be all fire and brimstone and focus one's life around only worrying about sin, as if sweeping a minefield all day. On top of all, though, so many Christians seem like they think about sexual sin all day long everywhere they go. How did it Yet to be like that, I can't imagine early Christians running around bothering Romans who didn't want to hear it all day and they need to stop being gay or stop carving erotic images or you're enjoying sex too much. They were certainly persecuted, but I have a hard time imagining it was because they went out in public holding signs that said, turn or burn. And the post continues in ways that I simply can't repeat here. Now to share where with the the poster there I I can't envision that version of Christianity either but if you were to simply use a search engine and type in about christians and human sexuality or christians and sex you will find discussion boards and forums that are filled with headlines and questions such as as that one in fact i'm looking at a list now another two would read this christians as a whole need to destigmatize sex that's one and then the following one is a question and it is what kind of sex are christians allowed to have just Kind of straight to the point on that one. But I find the middle one to be most fascinating. Christians as a whole need to destigmatize sex. And again, that was posted on Reddit in 2020. And, you know, I, I think about that sometimes and I wonder is that all that Christians are known for? When we talk about Christian engagement in our culture at large, there are a lot of things that we oppose, but are we known only? for a negative sexual ethic in other words the beliefs that we hold about sex are they perceived to be stigmatizing are they seen seen to lead to human suffering or a lack of pleasure in some regard are christians missing out in some way well i'd like to spend a few weeks uh, throughout the month of february unpacking human sexuality from a biblical perspective talking about what christians believe about sex about love, about family. And I want us to find that Christians maintain a positive sexual ethic. In fact, the sexual ethic that we encourage, that we find in the Word of God, leads to human thriving, something that our counterparts are unable to share based on contemporary research. We'd like to talk first about our pro-marriage view and what we mean by that. This is really the foundation of where we will go. We're going to talk about a definition for sex and for marriage, and we're going to talk then about sex within marriage and how it is good. And so we have a positive view of sex within the confines of a monogamous, lifelong relationship between male and female, as God had intended. Now, I'm going to be sharing today from Wayne Grudem's work, Christian Ethics, which I think is an excellent resource for any follower of Jesus Christ. It says this in scripture, marriage is seen as a lifelong relationship between a man and a woman that is established by a solemn covenant before God. The prophet Malachi speaks of marriage as a covenant to which God is a witness. And it reads in Malachi two fourteen. but you say, why does he not accept your offerings? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In this passage, a covenant is a solemn agreement establishing a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. In this agreement, the man and woman promise each other that they will be faithful to this marriage for a lifetime, and they call God to witness their promise and to hold them accountable for being faithful to it. Traditional marriage ceremonies have regularly included the recognition of both, one, the public nature of the marriage, at least requiring legal registration of the marriage in a public publicly accessible record so that that the society will know that this man and woman are husband and wife, and second, God's presence as a witness to the wedding vows. Both of these elements are found, for example, in a recently published update of traditional wedding ceremony vows by veteran pastor R. Kent Hughes. This wording draws on centuries of Christian tradition, and especially on the traditional service found in the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer. And it reads, We have come together here in the sight of God and in the presence of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable state of life instituted in the beginning by God himself, signifying to us the spiritual union that is between Christ and the church where did we get this notion that marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life and did we come up with this definition in order to discriminate against someone Well, no. Ryan T. Anderson, a recent scholar, has made the argument that there is an objective standard for marriage. There are observations that we can make about nature and about nurture, by the way, in our society that inform us about why marriage was believed to be between one man and one woman throughout human history. And he made this argument that marriage is based on three truths, those truths that men and women are complementary, that the biological fact that reproduction depends on a man and a woman, and third, the reality that children need a mother and a father. And so he he uses those arguments in a book that he wrote on the subject, uh, Defining Marriage. In fact, the title of the book is What is Marriage? And uh, he makes those arguments that they're... There are observable criteria for marriage, and you can see how people would come to an understanding that one man and one woman would make sense together in a union because, again, they complement one another. Uh, This is true emotionally. This is true biologically. Uh, The fact that reproduction depends on one man and one woman, and the reality that children need a mother and a father. And these are positive things. We can affirm these truths, and as we see our society headed in a different direction, we see these truths come under attack, and even as they are unraveled, we find that people suffer, particularly children in our society. In addition to that, of course, we find in Scripture God's good plan for creation, which is expressed in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, where he describes marriage, the first union of a husband and a wife, and God here in the garden as he describes his creation order, He simply records it in these ways, he says, that for Adam, there was no suitable helper that was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now just think about the intimacy that is pictured there and the benefit for both parties there. They are coming together to form one flesh. They work together as a cohesive unit. Their relationship is prioritized over all. It says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's a beautiful picture there of walking in God's good created order and finding satisfaction therein we talk about marriage, of course, uh, in this context, we are talking about the goodness of sexual intimacy, within marriage, which the Bible certainly affirms. And I'm going to continue reading from Wayne Grudem's work. It says, um, and the subject heading here is the goodness of sexual intimacy within marriage. And so he says, sex within marriage was created by God as fundamentally good. When God made the first man and woman, he created them with sexual differences and expected that through sexual intercourse, they would have offspring who would eventually fill the earth. So, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created, Created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. By the way, when God said that, Be fruitful and multiply, he knew exactly what he was implying. It says, And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And that's Genesis one twenty seven through 28, and verse 31. Therefore, before there was any sin in the world, at the very beginning of the human race, sexual intercourse between Adam and Eve was something God commanded as part of the very good creation. Adam and Eve also would have had strong sexual desires for one another. This is because God would have implanted within their hearts a desire consistent with God's command for them to be fruitful and multiply. Also, they would have had some instinctive, spontaneous sense of longing to reunite in a one-flesh relationship, as Genesis 2.24 implies, and I read that just a few moments ago. But God had separated when he took a rib from Adam's side and made it into a woman. It says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Both Adam and Eve would have recognized that they were originally one body, Adam's, and sexual intercourse would have restored some sense of that original unity while still retaining their individual personal distinctiveness. In the creation narrative, Sex is always seen within the context of marriage, implying that it has belonged within marriage from the very beginning. This is clear from Genesis two twenty-four. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This phrase, hold fast to his wife, implies that it is within the context of marriage that they become one flesh. Second, sexual unity and relational unity. The sexual union between Adam and Eve occurred within the context of a deep relational unity between them, and the man and his wife were both naked and, and did not feel shame. This implies a complete openness with one another, a lack of any desire to hide from one another. The sexual union between Adam and Eve was an appropriate reflection of the deep impersonal unity. Even after the fall, the biblical language used for sex within marriage implies a deep interpersonal involvement with one another. For example, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord in Genesis 4.1 if you grew up in a church, by the way, you grew up uh, as a follower of Christ, or if you had a Bible avail- available to you as a as a teenager, every time you read through the Bible and it said, so-and-so knew somebody else, uh, you understood what that meant, and you might have even chuckled at that if you were immature, but there was always a confusing line there. You'd read something and say, so-and-so knew somebody, and you'd have to ask yourself, what's the context here? Is it saying physical intimacy, or is it implying some kind of conversation here? And that was always uh, a point of, you know, trying to read through that. Uh, Wayne, when- Grudem continues. The Hebrew word translated new um, is a common word for knowing or understanding something, but it is also used several times in the Old Testament to speak of sexual intercourse, such as in Genesis 4:17, 25, 24, 16, Numbers 31, 17, 1 Kings 1:4. 1, Third, sin brought disruption to the relational and sexual intimacy in marriage. After Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, Genesis 3, 7. The fig leaves covered their sexual organs, showing that they were suddenly not as intimate in their relationship. They were no longer naked and not ashamed. When they concealed their sexual organs from each other, it implied that there was also a mental and emotional barrier to their relationship, and it suggested some reluctance or hesitancy regarding their sexual union. Sin had marred to some extent both their physical and relational intimacy and the beauty of that intimacy that they had shared prior to their sin. Fourth, however, sex within marriage is still seen as good after the fall. The entrance of sin into the world did not destroy the goodness of sex within marriage, For it is still viewed as positive and even delightful in later passages of Scripture. This is certainly true in the Song of Solomon, an entire book of Scripture devoted to the beauty of physical intimacy within marriage. And it is also evident from passages such as this section of Proverbs, which commends the idea of enjoyment and delight in sex within marriage. It says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be for yourself alone, and and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice of the wife within the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with the delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. In this passage, water is an image of sexual fulfillment and enjoyment in marriage. And in this context, the father is counseling his son to maintain sexual faithfulness within his marriage for his entire life. Gruden's work highlights for us the reality that the Bible is pro-marriage, and as it relates to this subject matter, the Bible is pro-sex within marriage. It is a good thing. It was part of God's good original plan for humanity, that marriage would be an institution which he has ordained, which he has ordained for human thriving, which he has ordained for his glorification. With that in mind, I want us to understand that not only is the Bible pro-marriage but the Bible is also pro-body. This is something that our culture is not able to say. Now think about everything that you've been told from our culture, all of the ads and everything that is celebrated in our society indicates that we are pro-body, that it's all about the body, that it is Christians who are opposed to the body's enjoyment, to satisfaction. Is that really the case, though? Let's consider what both have to offer, and we're going to do so today from a book by Nancy Piercy, and it is Love Thy Body, and I enjoy this work. I've encouraged it a few times, but I'm just going to read a few pages from it, and I want you to think about what this implies. It says, The key to understanding the secular ethic is that it is based on a materialist view of nature. It tells us that our bodies are products of purposeless, amoral, Darwinian forces, and therefore they are morally neutral. The implication is that what we do with our bodies has no moral significance. The self is free to use the body any way it chooses without moral consequences. Sex raises no unique moral issues at all, says Peter Singer of Princeton. Decisions about sex may involve considerations of honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on, but there is nothing special about sex in this respect, for the same could be said of decisions about driving a car, For Singer, the act of sex itself is amoral. It has no moral significance. The only moral dimension comes from accompanying attitudes like honesty and prudence, like driving a car. What does this amoral view look like in practice? Feminist author Naomi Wolf found out in extensive interviews with students. One young woman said, We are so tightly scheduled. Why get to know someone first? It is a waste of time. If you hook up, you can just get your needs met and get on your way. This bleak, one-dimensional view of sexuality assumes that sex is just a physical urge, that there is no deeper, more holistic yearning to connect with another person. Anonymous encounters are enough to get your needs met. We might call this the Proverbs 30 picture of sexuality, with its portrayal of someone who has committed adultery. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong in Proverbs 30, 20. In other words, sex is just a natural appetite, like eating. When you feel a sexual hunger, you satisfy it. No big deal. It is a dishearteningly low view of sexuality. Some may think sexual hedonism gives sex too much importance, but in reality, it gives sex too little importance. It treats the body as nothing more than a physical organism driven by physical urges. It treats sex as a strictly physical act, isolated from the rich inner life of the whole person. Thus, it deprives sex of its depth by detaching it from its meaning as life-giving between a man and a woman committed to building an entire life together. Under all the hype about sex as fun and games is actually a fundamental despair about the body, explains Catholic writer and former lesbian Melinda Selms. Beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, There is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. Therefore, what you do with the body has no moral consequence. You can do anything you that you like with it, Selms says. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner, or you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just sort of a wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. When scientists and philosophers decide that nature is just a vast machine that has implications for morality, the human body has become a wet machine, as Selms concludes. You must implicitly accept that your body is not you. It is just a shell or a juicy robot that the real you, the disembodied ghost, controls. This is the ghost in the sex machine. In literature on the... Uh, ecology movement, it is often asserted that Cartesian dualism has alienated us from nature, leading us to mistreat and pollute our environment. Yet we rarely make the connection to morality. The same dualism has alienated many people from their bodies, leading them to mistreat their bodies sexually. As Maylander says, the environmental movement has taught us that we should not treat nature as simply an object over which we exercise dominion. Yet many people are strangely unconcerned when we objectify in and instrumentalize the body. Feminists complain that sexual hedonism objectifies women, but the problem runs much deeper. It objectifies the human body itself. Now, in contrast to this, we find the science of sex, which Nancy Piercy continues to explain. And I do want to say that some of the language that was used in the last quotes were a little bit problematic, or they could be seen as a little bit more explicit than we would normally read uh, in an episode. But I think it's important to understand what our culture teaches about human sexuality and what is true. And so sometimes we have to address falsehoods using language that might be tough for us sometimes as followers of Jesus, but I think is important so that we can get a bigger picture of what's being said. We're trying to approach this as mature adults, not as snickering teenagers. So continuing on, it says the science of sex. The irony is that science is constantly uncovering new evidence of the profound interconnection between body and person. Now, that's different. Remember, she said they believe that the person is detached from the body, but here she continues. Pick up any recent book on sexuality and you will read about the role played by hormones, such as oxytocin and vasopressin. Scientists first learned about oxytocin because of its role in childbirth and breastfeeding. The chemical is released when a mother nurses her baby and it stimulates an an instinct for caring and nurturing. It is often called the attachment hormone. Imagine the surprise when scientists discover that oxytocin is also released during sexual intercourse, especially but not exclusively in women. Consequently, the desire to attach to the other person when we have sex is not only an emotion, but also part of our chemistry. Oxytocin has been shown to create a sense of trust. As one sex therapist puts it, when we have intercourse, we create an involuntary chemical commitment. The upshot is that even if you think you are having a no-strings-attached hookup, you are in reality creating a chemical bond, whether you mean to or not. An advice columnist for Glamour magazine warns that because of hormones, we often get prematurely attached. Even when you intend to just have casual sex, so-called, biology might trump your intentions. This may be why Paul said, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body, in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Sex involves our bodies down to the level of our biochemistry. The same holds true for men. The main neurochemical responsible For male response and intimate sexual contact is vasopressin. It is structurally similar to oxytocin and has a similar emotional effect. Scientists believe it stimulates bonding with a woman and with offspring. Vasopressin has been dubbed the monogamy molecule. As Grossman observes, you might say we are destined to bond. Paul's words ring even more true today than in his own time. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. Lauren Winter at Duke University translates Paul's words like this. Don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not? The implication is that repeatedly hooking up involves repeatedly breaking the bodily promise. No wonder breakups are so painful that yet many young adults cultivate a cynical attitude just to overcome the pain. In many cases, their emotional detachment is a form of what psychologists call defensive detachment. I'm afraid you will hurt me, so I will build an emotional wall to avoid being vulnerable to you. As a result, however deep attachment becomes ever more difficult. Even when young adults want to marry, they have a harder time making a lasting commitment. A YouGov poll found that almost half of millennials have given up the hope or even desire for a monogamous relationship. The hookup culture is unraveling the social fabric. It produces isolated, alienated adults who come together temporarily for physiological release. By repeatedly breaking up or never connecting in the first place, many people fail to learn how to form the strong, resilient bonds needed to create happy, fulfilling, long-term marriages and families. Even pornography has the addictive power it does because it literally changes the, chemical, the chemistry in our brains. Like other addictive triggers, pornography floods the brain with dopamine. That rush of brain chemicals, when it happens repeatedly, rewires the brain's reward pathway and become a default setting. Brain scientists refer to this as neuroplasticity. Neurons that fire together wire together eventually the brain is overwhelmed by the chemical overload and shuts down some of its dopamine receptors which means the porn viewer does not get the same high and has to seek out more hardcore porn to feel the same dopamine effect that's why porn is addictive the latest science is confirming that the human is being the human being is a unified whole the body personhood divide is not true to who you are In fact, the reason all the sex education and deprogramming aimed at young people is necessary is precisely because they do not, by nature, thrive on casual, meaningless sexual encounters. They crave emotional intimacy and fidelity. So as we unpack that, we see what a secular ideology produces. It produces detached, isolated, alone adults who are broken and have difficulty forming long lasting relationships that are satisfactory to the individual. And so what people esteem as being pro body is actually the opposite. It is pushing back against the very chemistry with which we are wired. It is pushing back against the great desire we have for intimacy with a spouse. We find this intimacy, by the way, described in Song of Solomon, where where Solomon's bride says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That is what the human soul craves. That is what the human body craves. And we find that when God created male and female to be together as one flesh in holy matrimony, that that was the fulfillment of that great desire for which God has created us. Now, understanding, we're talking again about generalities. God has not created us all to be uh, married. In fact, we find many examples in scripture of individuals who are not married. And we're going to talk more in the upcoming episodes. And one of them about singlehood, uh, being single and, and what that means and how that is a God honoring estate as well. Remembering, by the way, that the apostle Paul, that the Lord Jesus Christ were single individuals. Continuing on from there, though, when we look at the biblical account, we find that the Bible is pro-marriage, the Bible is pro-sex in marriage, the Bible is pro-body, but surprisingly, or perhaps most surprising for our culture, the Bible is pro-pleasure. I'm going to read for you from, uh, well, we read Proverbs chapter 5 just a few moments ago, and so I'm going to read to you today from Song of Solomon chapter 4. In Song of Solomon, uh, chapter four, it says these words, and this is the husband speaking first. It says, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense." You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance uh, fragrance of your perfume perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Remember, by the way, in Proverbs, when a fountain, with water was viewed, was used as an analogy for sexual fulfillment. The same is true here. He continues, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits and henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and every kind of incense tree with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And the bride responds, Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Now, of course, in Proverbs and in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, depending on how your Bible frames that, um, we understand that water, that fruit, are euphemisms for sexuality and uh, for pleasure within uh, the sexual encounter between husband and wife, and they are seen as a strong positive. There is a strong positive that is described here as she says, let my beloved come into his garden and chase, I'm sorry, and taste his choice fruits she's talking about sexual pleasure about gratification within the marriage union i know that some people when they read through song of songs or song of solomon that they interpret interpret this to be an analogy between christ and his church i think a better way of reading the text is to understand it as a beautiful picture of the erotic love between husband and wife that it is a beautiful picture of god's good plan for humanity, And as we read through this passage, I want us to note that contemporary research has found that the sort of pleasure that is described in the marriage bed in the Song of Songs is also found in our cultural understanding as research indicates that in fact, if an individual, I'm just going to read the headline from uh, Huffington Post, which is shocking. It says, want more and better sex, get married and stay married. Now think about this. This is a secular publication, but it says one more sex, get married, and stay married. And I'm going to go ahead and read from it. It says, if you haven't read the latest research about the sexual habits of American marrieds and singles, you are probably among the majority of people who have the belief that singles are having a lot more sex than folks who are married. Well, guess what? They're not. One of the most comprehensive studies on the subject, which was released in 2010 by the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University, compiles statistics on the sexual attitudes and habits of 5,865 people between the ages of 14 and 94. Their study revealed that less than 5% of singles between the ages of 25 and 59 have sex two to three times a week, while a quarter of married folks are beating the single record five times over. A whopping 61% of singles reported that they hadn't had sex within the past year compared with only 18% of married people. The belief that singles have more and better sex than marrieds has become a cultural myth that researchers and sociologists are finding to be untrue, and coming up with some hard evidence to substantiate this claim. While the single life is glamorized on film and on TV, the reality underlying the entertainment media's portrayal of quote-unquote the good life is, for many people, a far cry from the picture painted by Hollywood, both in quantity and in quality. The prevailing view of the majority of Americans is that once you're married, sex gets routine and boring, and because it's not so exciting any longer, the frequency falls off. The reality is that for the majority of singles, sex tends to be sporadic, infrequent, and, I'm sorry, or for some, non existent. There are, of course, some singles who are experiencing more abundant and pleasurable sexual activity than they ever did in their marriage or even in their lives, but contrary to commonly held beliefs, these people are the minority, not the majority of the population. Think about what that is saying. That is a secular publication. And it is saying that, look, what our society promotes as good as the ideal, its what we promote is leading to more sexual pleasure and, and more satisfying encounters, actually doesn't produce that at all. The hookup culture has produced nothing but a myth. As the headline says, if you want to have more and more enjoyable sex, then be married and stay married. Sex within marriage is an important component. It reaffirms the intimacy for which God created male and woman within the confines of holy matrimony all the way back in Genesis. It affirms the truth of the body. It keeps the promises that the body makes and its chemical exchanges. Uh, It helps us to unite with another person and to have an ongoing satisfying relationship with our spouse that brings glory to God and pleasure to us his creation. And so over the next few weeks, I look forward to unpacking this further and talking more about how the Bible actually teaches a positive sexual ethic. We don't have to apologize for what we believe. We don't have to feel as though we are projecting a worldview that undermines human pleasure. We as followers of Jesus Christ are certainly not missing out on anything. We'll be back next week to discuss the positive sexual ethic that Christianity affirms. Until then, may the Lord bless you.